Emma and Tom Talk Teaching, a podcast about all things education, presented by Emma O'Doher and Tom Breeze. Episode 12, Decolonising the Languages Curriculum with Kerry Bevan. Welcome back to Emma and Tom Talk Teaching. Today we have a lovely colleague in with us. We're bringing you the insights that she brings, really deep insights from her recent master's level study, her master's level dissertation nonetheless, and is entitled A Case Study of Student Modern Foreign Language Teachers and Their Emerging Perceptions Around Decolonising the Modern Foreign Language Curriculum. Kerry Bevan, my partner in crime. Welcome, how are you? Very well. Bit of a sore throat, I'm afraid, this morning, Em, but apart from that, oh, no. well, thank you for inviting got a me. note, have you? Yes, I've got a, a small absence note. Uh, yeah. Please, sir. Excellent. Do you want to tell us a bit about what you do here at Cardiff Met and how it was you found yourself on the Welsh National Masters Programme? That's a very interesting question. So I'm currently the PGC secondary subject lead for secondary languages, I'm going to refer to it, if, if you don't mind, mm-hmm. here at Cardiff Met. And I managed to join the National Masters Programme because I was teaching at Cardiff High. And I have been ever since I moved to Cardiff nine years ago. And um, the opportunity came up to do this National Masters. And I was, I'd was i always had a longing to complete a Masters and to, to further my studies. And when that opportunity arose, I thought, yes, I'm going to go for it. I made an application and fortunately managed to be successful. And I have absolutely enjoyed every minute of the journey. And Emma read that very long title of your your dissertation uh, a minute ago. Would you like to tell our listeners in kind of normal, friendly language what it was that you actually decided to do? Because obviously in a master's, you get the opportunity to carry out a research project and write it up. What were you interested in, in normal words, and why? Okay, so first of all, if we look at the why interests me. So over the two years of the National Masters, I became more and more focused on the themes of racism, intersectionality. And then I thought about looking at this through the lens of my own subject teaching, perhaps a question I'd never really asked myself. I've been teaching French for over 27 years. And I don't think I'd ever really thought about the countries who speak French and why they speak French. And that might sound like a really naive statement, I admit that. But I have been celebrating French language speaking and la francophonie for decades without really understanding perhaps or really probing into why these countries speak French and whether that really is a celebration. Furthermore, when I look around and I see the lack of uptake of language students at GCSE at A-level and I see language departments closing around the country at HE, I start to question again, we have lots and lots of learners learning languages, but they obviously don't all feel included in my subject. And therefore I start to think, why is that the case? And as I then go even further, I see there are major publications here in Wales, Anti-Racist Action Plan, Welsh Government, Professor Charlotte Williams's report. And I'm trying to sort of join the dots together and explore through the lens of my own subject what it would mean to student teachers who are starting off on their teaching journey, what it would mean to unpick that curriculum and to explore the themes of decolonisation, 
which in itself is a, is a term that has many, many meanings, but looking at it through the educational lens and see if we can come up with some better understanding of what that might look like and therefore have implications for them as student teachers, implication for all of the learners who they'll go out and teach and hopefully the colleagues that they'll meet along their journey. And I suppose an important early step when you are (laughs) embarking on master's level research projects such as this is to try and put together some research questions that are going to guide you uh, in this study and they become a real sort of touchstone don't they because you keep coming back to those they help you sort of decide you know what's in what's out so what were those questions and why were they the ones why were they important yeah that's a really good point Emma so I, I, I focus in on three questions and as I said before this theme is vast And, you know, there are PhDs and publications written. So I had to try and narrow it down. I've only got 15,000 words. So I initially wanted to look at their understanding of the term. Because as I've mentioned before, many, many interpretations, depending on where you're situated in the world, also whether you're exploring it through the lens of societal, economic, education. So looking at what they understand specifically by the term decolonising, the modern languages curriculum, After that, I thought it was really important to explore what barriers they perceived. So if they have an understanding of what this term means. They being your student teachers. My student teachers, sorry. Yes, so we're talking about a small cohort of uh, student teachers um, here. And once I've looked at the barriers and tried to see any, also if there are any correlations with any other literature, are these themes which emerge? Uh, Is this understanding which my student teachers display Is that similar or different to anything else that's been published before? And finally, just on a more positive note, in light of the recommendations of Professor Charlotte Williams, in light of the the new curriculum, in light of the anti-racist action plan for Wales, what is it that they perceive the future to be? So wanted to finish off on on a more positive note. If we were looking at barriers, try and counteract that with something more, more positive. And I was thinking about this word decolonising that you've mentioned. And, you know, you say decolonising, you think, well, where's that coming from? Well, the, the colonies, you think empire. And obviously, as you say in your dissertation, the British Empire was, you know, one of the absolute top dogs of empire. But the French had an empire as well. And I'm, I'm reflecting back to my own French lessons at school. I, had, I studied French and German at school. And I'm thinking about it now, you know, France had a lot of colonies back in the day and there's a lot of places in the world that speak French, particularly in Africa. And yet, actually, if I think back to my textbooks, most of the people in them were, I think, probably white and they were definitely all located in France. So it's a it's a bit of a controversial term, isn't it? Decolonising people, people sort of throw it around as a bit of a buzzword. But what are we talking about in languages then when we're, when we're talking about that? What's the problem? Well, I think there are multiple problems. I mean, first of all, just as you correctly identified, I think we have some issue and I don't want to generalise and I'm not talking about all language teachers, I'm not talking about all language material, but there is a sense of stereotyping that occurs in language teaching. And as language teachers, we have in our heart the desire to 
teach and to encourage future learners. So we, we're doing our utmost to sort of jolly people along, to want to make people or to encourage them to learn languages. So we, if we can use something like French-speaking countries, we can go in and we can say, look how powerful this language is. Look how much it would mean to you if you could speak French. You would be able to communicate in Canada, in Africa, across Guadeloupe, um, across the globe. However, just as you said, the problem is perhaps a clearer understanding of what happened within those countries and how French came to be spoken and how the French perhaps treated the indigenous peoples of those countries in order to remove those languages, the indigenous languages and the indigenous knowledge that was there to instate French as the lingua franca. So I think that's, that's an issue is, is about representation and how we clearly explain. And I, I know it would be very difficult. I'm not saying that we go into year seven and we go straight in with a look at the colonial history of France, look at the colonial history of Spain. Wasn't it awful? But I do think that we, we owe it to our learners to unpick the real narrative of what happened in those countries if we are going to talk about la francophonie, which is the term that we use to describe French-speaking countries across the globe. I think further issues actually have to do with imaging and who we show in the pictures. So Germany, for, let's take Germany for an example. Germany has a population of 82.6 million people. 13.4 of them are categorised as Ausländer, quite complicated in Germany because they're just called foreigners. And that is taken directly from government information. So already quite a large group of the population are, are not, as we would call, not necessarily come from Germany. And they also define 23.8% as being of migratory heritage. <laughs> Again, they've come in from outside. We know that the largest group of those are um, from Turkey. And yet when we look at images, and I'm, you know, I can say hand on heart this is true, when, when we look at images of Germany, we're often talking white people. Um, we look at Christianity often, we talk about Christian festivals, um, you know, the festivals throughout the year are all, you know, based in, in the country of Germany, which is fine, but we have to acknowledge that there are now people in those countries who have different celebrations and that they also are just important. And also to look in front of us and see the learners in front of us, to constantly ask them what they're doing for Christmas when in fact some of them don't celebrate Christmas, is perhaps not inclusive. And I'm not saying that Germany isn't a Christian country, and I'm not saying that that isn't important, but I think there are, we, we need to broaden what, what we teach. And, and the same continues for talking about native speakers. Um, there's this idea, you know, and, and I've done it as well, the idea is that, um, you know, we're training learners to be able to speak like native speakers, to sound, their pronunciation needs to be accurate and understood by a native speaker. But literature sort of reveals that actually our understanding of native speaker is quite skewed. And if we take France, for an example, native speaker is actually embedded in white Parisian France. So that, again, is not reflective of, of the globe. And, you know, there are speakers of French across the globe who are not white and do not live in Paris. <laughs> and that really struck me, that point, actually, just more broadly about decolonising the curriculum, because what you mention in your literature review is that actually the WJC, our national exam board, award marks for correct pronunciation, and that is pronunciation as a native speaker um, through that lens. 
and it just got me thinking about how deep you have to dig when you're trying to decolonize the curriculum it's not just about representation in textbooks the things no. that you can see it goes much deeper yeah. than that yeah definitely i mean the wjc and and they're not alone is it's, it's a drive to sound like a native speaker they don't define to you know in their defense they don't define native speaker it's through exploration i mean they have to be very cautious obviously but it is clear that what they mean is um you know this white parisian and it's reflected in the listening materials that are produced for exams um it's produced often in the materials that are um produced just you know just presented to you so um yeah i think there needs to be greater research on both you know commercial listening materials that are published and you know exam board material to reflect that being said it would be quite difficult in some cases because there are strong regional accents so listening to someone speaking french from mali might be very challenging for a listener if you were to do it in an exam situation but it is still important that perhaps even if they're not tested in an exam situation that you know we accept that there are vast differences in pronunciation across the globe and I think this is what you've uncovered in your lit review and your kind of uh, opening exposition of your <laughs> dissertation, which is that this sort of generalised desire to move away from a very white Eurocentric kind of scene, which is expressed in this whole sort of anti-racist Wales thing, is all well and good. But there's a whole other layer once you get into the subject specific um, and and you can't just kind of have a quick tick off, oh, yes, we're all going to be anti-racist. There's a whole very specialised discussion to be had. And I quite like that point you made about the fact that y you also could just dive in with both feet and do some quite basic tokenistic things like chuck a load of white writers off your reading list and replace them with black writers or something like that. And you even slightly take issue with, with the word decolonising and, and suggest that maybe widening might be a, might be a better way of putting it. Well, I mean that that's been that's been thrown around the idea of widening versus decolonizing. What do we mean by decolonization? You know, the word decolonization itself as I've mentioned before, many many meanings, but we're talking about removing a place from colonial status. That's really what it means, which is very very difficult in education. But I think if we were to widen, my issue I do I do put that um, idea forward. I think widening might just avoid some of the uncomfortable conversations that we're going to have to have if we are truly to unpick this Eurocentric. And, and, and my subject really is here we have in Wales, we have the big three, they're called, you know, French, German, Spanish. Those are the subjects being taught primarily um, at GCSE at A-level. Yes, we have some heritage languages again i take issue with the whole use of modern foreign languages versus heritage if we just call it languages then everybody feels included so i think decolonizing maybe is the appropriate term it's just how we go about it and as you mentioned there's a great paper by um tuck and wang which is called decolonization is not a metaphor if you get a chance to read that it, it really is very powerful and it is just about that saying you can't just use it to do some reading list alterations or to do some tick box activities this is far deeper than that and in fact you might say that first of all before we can decolonize anything we need to decolonize our minds mm. 
which again is a place I'm 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 not sure I've been to yet. That that really is a place that would need you know great exploration. But can we decolonise anything before? And there I sit in my you know my white privilege. Here I am again. I haven't experienced any of these things, so you know I I take note that that's the case too. And that's quite a challenging thing <laughs> to. Yeah to do as an individual but to then model and facilitate with student teachers who you know in many ways are looking for sort of some concrete reliable answers when they're about to go into teaching but actually they're entering a world where there's a lot of unanswered questions and a lot of things to grapple with I really liked that point actually in your literature review about white people assuming that there is a neutral point from which we take our diversity when in reality that white norm is what they put at the centre before they consider others um, as being diverse from there you know that really struck me how you even begin where you even begin and and the fact that and you uncover this really well so we'll get into your research now the fact that student teachers then go into a school placement two on our program potentially having done all of this sort of introspection and they might come up against some views some people who haven't gone through that process because we really are at the foot of a a very very huge mountain although we do have this ambitious target of an anti-racist Wales by 2030 so you need to tell us now I think how how you had your research questions what tools did you set about implementing to try and answer and address those questions so had to have a long think about this obviously anyone who's going into research has to consider very carefully the sorts of tools you're going to use first my first real issue was that I am a subject lead and I have a position that I need to really reflect upon um, before I embark on using any tools so I want to avoid any feeling by the by the participants that I am in any way coercing them or influencing them or making them feel in any way that they should say something just because I'm in the room so to avoid that the first thing I set about doing was was setting up an online questionnaire so in that respect it's anonymous I've got no idea gives them great freedom open-ended questions for the most part with some uh, some yes no so some quantitative data was established from that questionnaire but just allowing them the freedom to to express what they needed to do without any sort of um, feeling that anyone was making any judgment and then from that so had a real unpick of that looked at what that looked like made some adjustments to um, a teaching seminar day that I always do but based on what I'd read there I made a few tweaks and adjustments and then I thought well let's see what happens let's allow them the possibility to do something with the information that they've had on on that day and let's see at the end of the placement what their feelings are around the same sorts of research questions and so um, that was done through an online discussion group again I made the decision not to participate in that group to allow for this impartiality so I asked a colleague to lead that so again in no way would the students feel compromised so online questionnaire followed by um, an online focus group I mean we don't want to get into a big geek fest now about methodology because that's going to interest us and probably none of our listeners or a very very small proportion of our listeners but you've covered that kind of ethics power dynamic thing 
well there you know you were the the teacher effectively of these students you had to be really really careful about that there's another angle that you also mention in that section where you set out your your design and that is the fact that you have to consider that in some ways you're an insider and in some ways you're an outsider and to consider where that's a good thing where that's a bad thing uh, and and what you can do about it basically so what did you find when you had that moment of self kind of consideration I mean, yeah, I'm an, I'm an outsider in that I'm doing the research and that I, I, I can't have any real understanding of lived racism or any sort of experiences that learners would have, would have had. And I'm an insider because I know these students really well. And that, that for me, actually, that it took me a long time to grapple with what I was going to do there because I was really conscious that at no point did I did I want that insider knowledge and the fact that I'm also a, a language teacher and still practicing language teacher so I, di- I didn't want I mean what I say it shouldn't be about what I say I'm not trying to teach them again I think it comes back to the whole thing about decolonizing I'm not trying to teach anyone how to decolonize or how to make um, a curriculum more inclusive so that was a it was a it took a long time, actually, Tom, to, to come up with some as a, the tools, the right tools to make sure that that power dynamic and the insider-outsider position was accurately reflected in the tools that I used for the, for the research. And what was, what was really interesting was that you removed yourself from the focus group. So you did not facilitate that. Yeah. You got someone else in <laughs> and you did a bit of a reflection after that. So t- tell us a, a little bit about that before we get into the findings. Yeah, so just on that point, I, again, it took a long time. I was absolutely convinced that the literature I'd read about um, my positionality in the research uh, and the fact that I would possibly influence the discussion really worried me so I did remove myself and yet when I then listened and looked at the transcript my desire to achieve an online focus group so a discussion platform where the students would feed off each other and listen to what they said never materialized and it was really clear from the transcript that it was just and through no fault of anyone it was a Q&A session and then I did some more reading when I came to reflection and actually I thought there are some some academics who actually argue that yes you could have been part of that group because I know more I know I know what went on in the questionnaire so I can I can steer and in fact can we ever be truly impartial I think that's that's another thing that I sort of came to terms with I I, I can't no researcher can ever be truly impartial and, I, and that was a sort of regret, a sort of at the end when I reflect upon what took place. And, you know, I think on, a, on another day, I with maybe more knowledge and more confidence in my search as a researcher. And maybe that's an excellent thing to sort of observe is that on your journey, and I hope many of many of the listeners actually start the journey of, of doing an MA, practicing teachers out there, because on that journey of reflection, it just came to, to light that actually I, I should have should have um, led that steering group. And I think it's easy, actually, sometimes, isn't it? It's kind of going back to the, my last question. Is it, It's easy to go, oh, insider equals bad. Oh, it's yeah. bad that I'm an insider. I better remove myself and get somebody completely neutral. But it's so much more nuanced than that, isn't it? Because if you get somebody neutral in, they don't know the kind of tricks of the trade and the nuances and the unspoken things. And so it's not about making... I mean, this is, this is the point you're making about 
trying to do something totally impartial, imagining that we're a, a sort of scientist floating above the fray. We can't do that in education. And actually, our knowledge of the insidery stuff of education actually is needed. And, and to throw it overboard is, is not the best idea. Uh, and our knowledge of the participants. I think that also was a key feature missing, that sort of emotional um, dynamics that I would have had during that conversation and perhaps again focus group wouldn't have been you know a reflection perhaps you know just sort of semi-structured interviews given that it ended up being sort of a Q&A maybe discussing issues such as racism within the curriculum white privilege again people feel quite uncomfortable discussing within um, an online focus group so perhaps just just one-to-one would have been far better but these are things we learn on our journey. <laughs> So we need to get into the data analysis and, and the findings now. And you went through quite a painstaking <laughs> process of, of coding, of thematic coding. And what was quite interesting about your findings, so there's a bit of a before and after story here about what changed about the student teacher's perceptions when you did the questionnaire versus when you then did the focus group later on down the line. So can you give us an insight into some of those big themes that you found and what those contrasts were, that change in the student teachers? Yeah, it, it was rather a, rather a long process, I think, because I had two sets of qualitative data from the online questionnaire and then from the focus group, and I had three research questions. In some ways, I think I'd um, bitten off more than I could chew at times. It was lots and lots and lots of data. But if we just take question number one, so the research question, just to remind you, was about what student teachers understand by decolonising the MFL curriculum. So what I noticed in the online questionnaire, two main themes occurred, and these were moving away from Eurocentricity and historical context, which was great. The participants articulated really clearly sort of the, the historical nature of colonialism and the colonial impact upon the curriculum. What was really interesting was when I looked into the data from the online focus group, that sort of historical context had disappeared as a theme completely. And the, the, the participants were, were focused on self-reflection and most importantly, learner voice and authenticity. And when I unpicked that even further, I sort of wondered why. You know, why have we gone from a semi-state of maybe what you would describe as a, a textbook answer on decolonising? There was absolutely nothing wrong with it before um, we'd had any discussions on decolonising the curriculum and also at the start of CP2. So remember, the students are, are very early days in their teaching career and their teaching practice. We then have this one day that I set aside on the course to look at this theme. And on the basis of that, maybe they make some changes and they have some discussions and they start to implement something in their teaching. And then this idea that actually what it boils down to is the learners and how they're represented. So their understanding is no longer this theoretical you know, historical colonialism discussion, but it is about what does that mean for the learners in front of me? And, and how can I ensure that their voice is heard within this, within my teaching? So, I, you know, that, that for me was a huge shift away from the what into, you know, actually what it means, you know, it's, it's about knowledge, I suppose, actually, Emma, maybe it comes down to, there's this, the, the clear knowledge that you might find in a textbook to actually 
the knowledge that I know in the classroom and, and what that means for my learners. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that was that was one example. And the perception of and I'm getting into another research question yeah. now, but the, their perception of the barriers mm. to doing this sort of work at, when you gave them the questionnaire versus when they were, you know, having uh, having gone through two school placements by that point yeah. were quite different as well. Yeah. And the, the emotions that went along with it. So perhaps you could give us an idea of those yeah. contrasts. I think, in fact, in some ways, this... I found this question the most interesting because literature around decolonising within the ITE curriculum um, across the board sort of demonstrates key key barriers and they sort of reflected in all literature. The idea that it's time and workload, that it's not having enough knowledge, it's resources, it's school in, in its widest form. So in all the stakeholders that are involved, both learners, parents, teachers, um, and those reappeared in the online questionnaire, very, very sort of common common things and emotional reactions, so a sense of fear. And then what was really interesting is that when it came to the focus group, so, you know, three months, four months later, again, some of those same barriers reappeared. But suddenly, suddenly there was a, a push towards this idea of lack of confidence in moving away from individual lessons. And I thought, oh, okay. So what they were telling me uh, and what they discussed is that they were happy to do a lesson on, let's take descriptions, a very common lesson. We all might have sat in a lesson, a language lesson, and been taught, I've got blonde hair, I've got blue eyes, um, I'm quite tall, um, you know. And when we'd looked at this in our subject uh, day, we discussed the fact that does... Do the langu- does the language that you teach your learners actually reflect the learners in front of you? So do you ever teach the word, for example, if I'm wearing a hijab, do you ever teach the word for um, different types of African hair? Do you teach the word for different physical descriptions that apply to the learners in front of you? So in the online discussion, they, quite cl- they quote that and they said they'd gone away and they'd done one-off lessons on decolonising the curriculum where their learners had been fairly represented and were included and that their true narrative was reflected in their teaching. What they were really concerned about is they had no idea to seam that together and to interweave that into all of their practice. And they didn't even know where to start. They didn't want resources. What they wanted was a clear thread to to underpin everything that they were doing. And I thought that was really powerful. At first, I was really, I think, quite worried about it. I was like, oh, no. What, what, what's happened? Why have they done this? And I thought, actually, that's fantastic that they've made that comment because it goes back to my decolonisation is not a metaphor sort of literature that I'd read. They're acknowledging that it's not that. They're saying to me, Kerry, it's, it's more than that. And, and how do you help me on this journey? Or how do I help myself? And actually, that goes back to a broad theme of education, doesn't it? Which is there is always this tendency to want to say, I've done (laughs) X, Y, Z thing. I've ticked that off. And also that resources point you make about, oh, can we not just get something in off the shelf that we deliver? And I suppose if we're going to have this anti-racist Wales, of all things, that's the one we're going to have to try and avoid the tendency to go, yeah, we did that on October the 24th (laughs) or whatever it may be. 
What was the perception of the students then about how they were going to take this forward? Because I know that was your your other big question, wasn't it? And I guess if we get this anti-racist Wales, they're going to be the ones, you know, in the middle of doing it in the classroom. Yeah, I think that was perhaps the the one that wasn't explored as thoroughly. I have to admit the the answers were not as full in that. And again, maybe that comes from the fact that it's quite difficult as a beginner teacher um, to even understand what, you know, what can it look like? Because they're still trying to grapple with what it means now in the classroom so they, it's quite difficult to see the future that said there were some really interesting findings some of the so in the online questionnaire some of them did refer to the opportunities within the curriculum for Wales and this opportunity because there's no um, set curriculum there's no set things that we've got to do within language teaching that you could have the opportunity to explore for example we have one of our strands is about literature the imagination why can't you look at some poetry from Marley when you're looking at, I don't know, colours. Can you find something that's relevant? So they did refer to that. Others talked about um, the future within decolonising of A-level, teaching only, because they felt that was where the students were most mature and could cope with anything. I think they also felt that A-level teaching was where they had their most freedom to explore themes. And then in the actual focus group, the key one that came back was about collaboration. And I think that is so powerful because we do need to collaborate together, both as initial teacher educators here, you know, within schools and further afield. There's, there, there's so much work out there. But this idea of collaboration, that they could go in and be semi-experts, you know, that they have some knowledge that they could go in and they would like to share with their colleagues they did feel there was a, a huge tension there around that though Emma's nodding is there was a huge tension because they feel that they I think at one point I do quote something like we're just PGCE students they really do feel their place which is quite sad in a way because we'd like to think they have some agency and that can go in and share that so the collaboration was was the most powerful thing moving forward I think Tom is that you know it, it will look promising but we have to work together on this So having done all of this research and found out some really important things that range from what you would do with your PGCE students going forward to the bigger sort of systems at play here, you had quite a lot of recommendations to make. (laughs) I did. I mean, perhaps you could start with initial teacher education because you you make the point in this thesis that that's a really important place to start isn't it with this work but there are some problems that we face when trying to do that so what recommendations do you have for ITE and this work? I think it sort of goes well the first one is to do with this idea that we can do a one day uh, seminar we can do a one day series of events and and hope that we will have unpicked Um, the decolonising the curriculum, the inequalities, the racial inequalities that exist within within our curriculum currently. And just just from, you know, clear evidence in a very small group was that that didn't work. I did it. I did it myself. I, I tried to give them some knowledge. And again, that was my naive approach in that I could give them knowledge. It isn't about that. So I think that on the first level, we need to stop thinking about that it can just be, let's do decolonising, let's change some reading lists, let's ensure we've got some authentic materials and and we've done it. I think, and and literature again sort of bears this out, is that it is more 
and it, and it is going to be uncomfortable because the work is uncomfortable. So initial teacher education, I think we have it upon ourselves to sort of unpick this theory of white privilege and racism within a very safe space and over a period of time. I think that's the main thing about decolonising. It can't happen here and now. It is a very, very long process. And the reason why it needs to start with student teachers is because they're on at the start of their journey for education and the impact that they'll have on generations to come and colleagues is, you know, we can't redo that. So I do think that that we need to stop a little bit and think about how are we going to have these discussions and in some institutions, in, in some literature, it's been borne out that actually they, they shy away from this because, A, it annoys some people. They, they don't, the students, there's some pushback from the students. They don't necessarily want to engage in that. We don't want to alienate anybody. So, you know, we don't want to, again, I, you might say, how can I discuss white, how can I discuss racism from a from a position where I'm a white middle class woman who has got no lived experience of racism? But we do have to start somewhere, and whether that means starting with literature, that's you know perhaps the approach I would take next time is actually not me teaching, but actually let's look at what the literature says and then let's have an initial discussion, and then let's come back to it in a few weeks, and let's come back to it in a few weeks. So that on a wider scale is, is having that. And, and perhaps for ITE is, is really now linking up the dots between our partner schools and making sure that we are making the link between theory and practice and that we are sharing upon the good practice that's already out there, you know, that we know that DARPA's out there doing a great job, but we need to join up the dots, I think, a bit clearer for everybody. And I know something else that you're passionate about that comes through in the recommendations is the need for data, this mm. sort of gap in the data i don't know is it specific to wales I no i think it's uh, i think it's uk wide so we're talking about a gap in the yeah, data about how many what percentage yeah. of global majority people are opting yeah. for languages in the uk and you know you you're quite passionate about that tell us why yeah i mean as i've mentioned before you know i'm in a subject that is in you know <laughs> Is, is not recruiting, we're not attracting learners. Numbers are really, really low. Recent report by Dr Cullen in, in, at Queen's in Belfast around language trends in Wales suggests that within 10 years, German will be gone from the curriculum here in Wales unless we address this sort of need to encourage learners to, to uptake at GCSE, A-level and, you know, further on. Along my journey, as I mentioned before, it's been a long journey of teaching, I have noticed that there, there, there just isn't a fair representation of perhaps the learners in front of me or the learners within the school who are continuing their studies of languages. And that may for be for many reasons that have got nothing to do with not feeling reflected or feeling that my subject is Eurocentric. Or, but because there's no data, because there's no breakdown, definitely uh, in, in England, I know that, and, and here in Wales, it's it's difficult to sort of address any inequalities that exist within the curriculum if I don't know exactly whether that is... It's just my perception, having taught in a school where, you know, global majority learners are at least a third of the, of the school population, yet I'm not seeing that further on at GCSE and A-level. So it would be really interesting to unpick. We can't do things unless we really know what the picture is. So, Kerry... 
what's next for you? Have you got your eye on a doctorate? And if so, are you going to stick with, with this area? <laughs> Have you thought about it? Or are you just like, no. leave just me alone. I want to go and basking. hibernate for a bit. <laughs> You're basking in that 90% no. you've just scored, which I believe is publishable in the uh, criteria. It so is, yeah, what's the plan? It is. Yeah, so there's there's lots of plans. I think I mentioned earlier that it'd been a sort of a, a lifelong ambition to do an MA. I'd watched many, many years ago my husband complete a PhD, both full-time and then very, very part-time while he tried to work full-time himself. And at the time, I remember reflecting, thinking, oh, I'm never going to do that. Why would anyone put themselves through such a journey? And here I am sitting in front of you saying, that's exactly the journey that I feel is ahead of me. What that journey looks like exactly, I don't know. PhD, EdD, not sure. But first steps definitely are to disseminate some of this work. I'm not saying it's unique, but I'm saying there is a gap in the sort of the language um, language teaching approach to decolonising the curriculum. I have a colleague in London working tirelessly and many colleagues around the country, but I just think there could be some, some useful uh, information that could be disseminated. So perhaps publication, well, almost definitely try and get it published and then see if I can maybe do a Beera blog or do something for Beera. Marlon Moncrief, who um, features very heavily his work on decolonising, he features very heavily in my dissertation, but he is the next president of Beera. So they've got a, a focus on, on race and, and race equity um, at Beera. So, yeah, um, watch this space. But And whether it's just decolonising, I think... I'm not saying this journey is done at all in decolonising languages and my own sort of... My whole, and I didn't mention before, I also changed completely the way I think and the way I teach languages. It might be that I need to broaden it out a little bit and perhaps do what I've suggested is that try and join the dots up between what the learners experience because true impact, I think, is about what the learners feel. So if I can somehow do a, a PhD or an EdD that includes learners' perceptions of what this decolonizing or anti-racist if we want to use you know anti-racist curriculum looks like here in Wales wouldn't it be interesting to find out what they think so that might be the next steps well I think we'd all wish you all the very best with that and I suppose part of dissemination is that we've dragged you into here as well to record about it so thanks for doing that that discussion has been really interesting it's time to move on to our infamous and feared short slots uh, so have you got something interesting that our listeners could go, can go and read? I think I've mentioned before the Tuck and Wang paper of 2012. So it's entitled Decolonisation is Not a Metaphor. And it identifies a trend in which the language of decolonisation is being misused or superficially applied within education. So I think that could be quite a powerful journal to read. Um, they state that when metaphor invades decolonization, it kills the very possibility of decolonization. It recenters whiteness, it recenters theory. So I think that could be a good starting point for why we wouldn't want to do any tick box activities in this process of decolonizing um, and creating an anti-racist curriculum here in Wales. So we're going to ask for the something to try with a little bit of trepidation because we, we've just spent a long time discussing how we don't want to take tokenistic approaches to decolonising the curriculum. So you've got something a bit broader for people to think about. Is there something to try? Yeah, I think it's really important that, again, we don't do this 
I can just replace some authors for some black authors or I can just, you know, replace some images for some some people of colour, some global majority. I think that's really important. So I think it would be much better if if we just spend some time reflecting and I think that would be a really good starting point. To what extent is my subject Eurocentric? Where Where is it that within my subject that I feel that it is just absolutely centred in this... Eurocentric approach to teaching and the answer to this might not occur straight away and it shouldn't really occur straight away so I wouldn't worry about looking for straight away off-the-shelf resources I think it's far more important that particularly those of us who are white teaching here in Wales that we think about our white privilege and how this might have an impact on our teaching rather than looking for an off-the-shelf solution straight away so just some reflection time reading something first thinking about where we are before we can sort of then enact changes in the curriculum. I think it's so important, isn't it, that this stuff always comes back to the nuances of the subject. I mean, I was chatting to you at the beginning of this about all the sort of white people in my textbooks when I was a kid. It had never occurred to me that I was being trained to speak like a a white Parisian or perhaps a a white, you know, Berlin (laughs) person in, in German. But that's not the music thing. I mean, the music thing for us might be, that, you know, that we glibly refer to everywhere outside Euro- of Europe, you know, musically as world music, if we're yeah. not very careful. Yeah, I think that's so true, Tom. So I think just to, again, because that is doing what we said, it becomes a tick box. So, and you're, and you're sort of um, bringing it back to us and them again, that sort of, this is us and this is diversity. Diversity is from our white point it's not a neutral point so yeah diversity being everything other than us everything other than us exactly (laughs) and we've done it as well you know we do it in language teaching as well so yeah just some initial time for reflection about where you are what your subject how eurocentric your subject is before you start sort of enacting major changes to the way you teach and the curriculum and the inclusivity Kerry Bevan, congratulations. Yes. Thank you. <laughs> and we'll be grabbing you back in a few years' time when you're on your way to a doctorate. Definitely. <laughs> and we'll be getting your ears uh, back with us in two weeks' time when we'll be back with something else. Thanks for listening and bye for now. You've been listening to Emma and Tom Talk Teaching, a podcast about all things education presented by Emma O'Duha and Tom Brees. The special guest this episode was Kerry Bevan, who runs the PGCE Languages Programme here at Cardiff Met, and thanks to her for taking part. Podcast artwork is by Beth Blandford and the music is by Cameron Stewart. The studio manager is Adrian Raps. We're on X at Talk Teaching Pod if you want to come and say hello. We'll be back in a fortnight with something else interesting. Until then, take care and enjoy teaching. Enjoy teaching.